0: And I've called this uh, retreat, or we've taken the theme of the inner room. And of course, this is uh, taken from one of the sayings of Jesus about prayer in Matthew in chapter 6, especially where he gives his essential teaching on prayer during the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the first thing he says about prayer is what prayer is not. He says prayer is not about what you do on the street corner when you're dressed up and attracting people's attention. Uh, I think all of us probably, or any any religious person, whether you're a priest or a monk or a layperson, person, doesn't matter, I think uh, any religious person has experienced something of the religious ego. The certain kind of satisfaction you get from looking religious uh, in the eyes of other people. And that can be more or less. You may be more or less conscious of it. Uh, I became, I wasn't particularly conscious of it until I became a monk and put on my habit and then uh, realized, of course, that people look at you and they think you must be more religious or closer to God than they are. Uh, so that's the first thing Jesus says about prayer is not to confuse it with that feeling of satisfaction you get when the ego is uh, stroked, and people think specially or more highly of you. And then he focuses in a series of short, very memorable uh, expressions uh, on what prayer is, or, or not so much on what prayer is in an abstract sense, but how we enter into prayer, how we discover prayer as pure reality, as pure experience. So he's not giving us a definition of prayer, but he's telling us how to do it, or what it is we do in order to find it. And so the first thing he tells us is, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in that secret place. And your Father, who knows what is done in secret, will reward you. So this short saying brings us into contact with, with a very uh, rich uh, series of, of, of ideas or of, of uh, insights into what prayer is and how we pray. Going as movement, into the inner room. It's about what we call interiority. Although we soon discover that the more we enter into this interiority of the inner room, we are actually transformed in our relationship with the outer world. So what does interiority really mean? It's not introversion. It's not insularity. It's not shutting down the uh, <coughs> contact with the outside world. But it's, a, it's, an interior, it's something we call interiority because we normally lack it because we are excessively externalized, focused upon external achievements or activities or running around, as we usually call it. I once uh, was talking to a student in a class I was giving a, at Georgetown as a young, undergraduate, young woman. And um, she had (coughs) told me that she had no religious background at all. And she said, I wasn't brought up in a a home that was hostile to religion, but um, we just weren't interested in it and never talked about it. And she said, so I, I took this course. I forget which course it was she was on. Uh, and at the beginning of each class, we had a short period of meditation, and I introduced them to meditation. And they, uh, she said that the best part of the course, of course, was the meditation. So, And then she told me that uh, the meditation... I said, w- what did the meditation mean to you? She said, well, it's very strange. I can't describe it. I can't put my finger on it. But one thing I could say is perhaps, I felt for the first time, this is the first time in her 21 years, that I had an inner life, an inner life. And if you asked her what she meant by that, she probably would have struggled to describe it, but that was, those were the words she gave. I felt I had, for the first time, an inner life, and uh, as a result of that, she was going to do a another course next term with someone called The Problem of God. <laughs> uh, and she said, I've become curious about God because of this inner life. She was sp- speaking a little bit like Etty Hillesum. If you know Etty Hillesum, the young Jewish woman in <coughs> in during the war in uh, Holland who discovered God uh, in, the, in the most appalling conditions of the... Uh, Of the persecution of the Jews. So this is the first thing that Jesus tells us about prayer. It's a movement into this experience of interiority, but a different kind of interiority from what we might imagine or what we might um, understand even. And then he tells us you have to close the door. You go into this inner room and you then close the door. Why do you close the door of a room? Hmm? In order not to be distracted from what's going on outside, yes? What does it show, the most obvious thing of all? It, what does it show if you, you go into a room and then you close the door? What, what does it suggest? Huh? An intention. An intention to what? To be alone, yes. No, privacy. Pri- privacy, yes. Solitude, Solitude okay, better. Relation. And and re- that you're in relationship. Also, you're going to be there for a while. If you if you say, oh, I forgot my my book in in the other room, and you go into the other room, you don't close and only to get the book and then come out, you don't close the door. So there's an intention to be in that space, in that way of being, for a period of time, a significant period of time, during which <coughs> you want to reduce as much as <coughs> possible uh, external distraction. And then he says, you pray in this inner space, in this secret, in this secret space. And we pray to the Father. If you were to meet a Buddhist who says, who asked you, what is the Father? What would you say? Hmm? Creator. Creator? Pardon? Ultimate reality? If you were speaking to a Buddhist, yes. The the Dalai Lama was once asked by an American sister, Sister Eileen O'Hay, some of you may know of. She once asked him, if you could meet the, if you could meet uh, Jesus, would you like to meet Jesus? And if you met him, what question would you like to ask him? And immediately he said, I would ask him, what is the nature of the father? I think it's a question not many Christians have ever thought about or could helpfully answer. So, we pray, Jesus says, to the Father. This is a simple, immediately understandable expression. Childlike in its simplicity. We might ask what it means to pray to the ground of reality. Ultimate reality, to the source, to the creator? What does it mean to pray to that? Anyway, Jesus says he's not getting into a whole lot of complex, uh, subtle questions like that. He's simply saying you go into this inner space, you decide to be there for a while, you close the door, and you pray there in the presence of this presence. The Father, called that we call the Father, could be called by different names. And your Father, this reveals the essentially personal nature of Christian prayer, or prayer and the understanding of the Christian faith, that in this experience of prayer, we are personally present to the Father as the Father is to us. And in that mutual presence, we could say, we are rewarded. We are enriched. We are enhanced. We are blessed. I mean, reward not in the sense of, you know, you've you've won the lottery, but rewarded in the sense that uh, this is a deep affirmation, a deep enrichment, a deep discovery of the essential meaning of your own existence. So, in these few words, beginning with this image of the inner room, Jesus gives us uh, an understanding. He gives us many other parables, many other uh, stories, many other sayings uh, that enrich this understanding of prayer and deepen our understanding of it. He tells us, for example, that when you pray, do not go babbling on like the pagans who think this, the more they say, the more likely they are to be heard. You don't need to do that. You don't need to just shout at God, telling God what you need, because your father knows your needs even before you ask. Very important principle of Christian prayer that, that in a way sets sets Christian prayer automatically into, as taught by Jesus, into a contemplative uh, understanding. So prayer is about interiority. It is about presence. It is not about vocalizing our needs or our thoughts but it is about trusting that God knows us even before we know ourselves. And therefore, our own self-knowledge comes out of that knowledge that God has of us. And then there's another section, of course, of the sermon where Jesus speaks about uh, when you pray, do not worry. Lay aside worry, anxiety, stress, all the things we, we preoccupy ourselves with, get upset and uptight about, our endless worries about ourselves, our health, <coughs> our family, our country, our world, all the worries that we bring uh, with us uh, into prayer and into everything else that we do. Jesus says... At the time of prayer, lay these aside. It's a very radical teaching and a radical challenge for us. At the time of prayer, do not worry. And then he tells us, be mindful, pay attention, set your mind on God's kingdom before everything else, and everything else will come to you in due course. So get your priorities straight. And the priority is to set your mind on God's kingdom, which is not the same as thinking about the kingdom or thinking about God or thinking about (coughs) what the kingdom means even. But setting your mind on the kingdom is another way of describing what prayer is, what we're doing when we pray. And then he tells us, Be in the present moment. Don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow, every day, has enough problems of its own. So if we put these elements of Jesus' teaching on prayer together, we have a contemplative understanding of prayer. And this is why any Christian who prays in accordance with the teaching of Jesus needs to be open to the contemplative dimension of prayer. There are many dimensions, many kinds of prayer, which are more or less contemplative. There's praying just for good weather, which is not a particularly contemplative thing to do, but understandable. Maybe it works, but it's not uh, contemplative in this sense. So. Any Christian understanding of prayer or practice of prayer really demands, or us invites us, to discover and experience what we have always meant by contemplation. So that's our starting point, really, for these, uh, these days of reflection and of prayer. Um. Earlier today, I went to visit the Rothko Chapel. How many of you have been there yet? Oh, quite a lot of you. So we'll all be able to go there. I think it's on Thursday. We'll go there for a session. (coughs) Um, And it's a very powerful place. It's uh, a large space, a room, Uh, housing. I forget how many actually it is. Is Anybody know how many? Twelve. 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 No. Fourteen. Fourteen. Hmm. Sure. Fourteen uh, great, amazingly simple, uh, large paintings by Mark Rothko. And uh, he went through various phases of his life, as we all do. And uh, in the earlier phase of his life, his paintings were... Had very bright colors. There, there was a series where he, he did these bands, horizontal bands of brilliant uh, joyful colors. And then uh, but this series of paintings, especially for which this chapel or building was specially designed to hold, are much darker, very dark. But what do we mean by dark? I don't. F- they're heavy, in a way, but they are profoundly affecting. It's difficult to find words for it. Um, anyway, in this uh, very full space, in which these large, dark, charcoal grey, or even black. Almost, almost black. The eyes adjust, of course, as you're in the space. Uh, you feel a very powerful energy. It's a bit like being inside a cloud. I was once flying in a small plane, and uh, the pilot had told me I could take the controls. And I don't think I did have the controls, but he pretended I did. And, uh, <laughs> And we flew, we flew into a cloud. And I was utterly utterly confused and disoriented. I had no idea whether I was going up or down, left or right. It was a moment of pure panic, really. I hadn't been for the pilot. And uh, it, it, I, I find going into the Rothko Chapel is a little like that. You, you know you're in this cloud, a cloud of unknowing or a cloud of forgetting. Remember in the cloud of unknowing, uh, he also speaks about the cloud of forgetting. And the first step of prayer is to place everything that you know and remember or worried about into this cloud of forgetting. You just let go of it. You don't solve your problems. You don't analyze the past. You don't plan for the future. You put everything into this one dropbox called the Cloud of Forgetting. And then that frees you up to penetrate into the cloud of unknowing. And he says, when you're first in this cloud of unknowing, you don't know where you're going. You don't know which is up or down, left or right. And it it was exactly what I felt when I flew into this cloud. And as you stand in the Rothko Chapel, and this is just my, my experience—you have your own—but I felt uh, I felt something of this um, loss of language. And in that sense, it was—it is silence when there's no language, and there's no language available for you to draw on but you know that you are awake and conscious and present to something, uh, but there's no language or thought to describe it or encapsulate it or color it. That's uh, an experience of silence or the beginning of an experience of silence. And above all, I think, uh, because there is just this this sort of cloud of color, of of, of colorless color, around you, Uh, there are no images, no representations of reality, no re-presenting of reality. That's what a a representation is. It is a a re-presenting. So, in this cloud, that's what I felt in the Roscoe Chapel, there is a direct experience of what Rothko was expressing. In the single reflex camera, the photographer looks through the lens and sees exactly what will be photographed. With a twin-lens reflex or rangefinder camera, the viewed image the image you look at through the lens, uh, could be very different from what is actually photographed. So, the experience is a bit like this single reflex, where there is no um, refraction of, the, of what you are seeing. And we'll come back to this idea of seeing later uh, in these talks and these uh, paintings of Rothko had for me had this uh, feeling of immediacy and of directness almost disturbingly direct y- you either you take them or you leave them y- you don't talk about them really as I'm trying to do not, there's not much point in trying you don't talk to them either you know <laughs> And if you're there with someone, you may say a few words about them, but whatever you say about them feels very kind of flat. Oh, aren't these very powerful paintings, you know? So they are monumental, too. They are larger than life, but they are very present. And perhaps they need to be that that size because they are a very confident affirmation of something. They're very confident. A good artist is very sure, or the work carries with it, a sureness uh, of what it is that is being communicated or expressed. And it seems to me they're very confident affirmations that there is a reality that we cannot imagine or define we cannot put into words, we cannot do a picture of, we cannot represent. But there is a way for us to see it directly, not by refraction, but directly, and to touch it. Directly. And Of course, if you touch something living, you are touched by it. And it becomes present as you become present to it. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, the Rothko Chapel is basically a room. It's a roundish room to hold these very powerful works of art. And it's a room, what do you do in a room? You enter it, you close the door, you meet, you may meet other people in this room, You are in this room. Where are you? I am in this room. That's where you are at this moment. And it's a place where you share the space. And a room is a funny thing, because a room creates a sense of space by putting walls around it, and a ceiling, and a floor. So it kind of encapsulates space. You don't need, uh, you don't need walls, a ceiling, and a floor in order to create space. Space is everywhere. Where is there not space? But we become conscious of this space because we put a ceiling and a floor and walls around it into which we enter. So this is the paradox of entering this inner room, is that there is a a frame by which we enter it. The room itself is a frame, a frame of reference. But when we go into it, we are experiencing not the walls or the ceiling or the floor, but we are discovering spaciousness, and that's another good way of understanding what Jesus means by prayer. We're entering into the space that is God, the spaciousness that is God. <coughs> the Greek word uh, that Jesus uses for inner room is temeon, the inner room. It uh, is often thought to uh, evoke the room or the space at the heart of the temple of the, of the temple of Jerusalem, which was known as the Holy of Holies. And it was this uh, this little space, right in the center, or in the deep in the depths of the great huge labyrinth of the temple, where the presence of God was said to reside. There's a story that one of the Roman generals who had attacked uh, Jerusalem and devastated it went sacrilegiously, walked into the Holy of Holies to try to understand what these Hebrews, uh, what, what drove them to such uh, intense uh, resistance and gave them such a strong sense of identity. So, like a good Roman, he went in to look for a representation of a god or a goddess. And he was shocked and rather uh, and surprised to find that there was nothing there in the Holy of Holies just space. So, and at the, uh, in the New Testament, after the death of Jesus, at the moment of his death, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was split in two. And this symbolized the understanding of the early Christians over several decades, of course, that the death of Jesus removed something. It removed a barrier or a veil or a screen or a block that prevented us from having direct access to this space. And that through the death of Jesus and the risen life of Jesus, we are invited to enter into this inner room within ourselves. It's no longer represented uh, architecturally or religiously as a building or as a sacred space external to ourselves, but it is now discovered to be, in fact, a reality, the reality, at the core, the heart of our own being. And this, this reinforces the teaching of Jesus on prayer. It now becomes understandable why he tells us to go into this inner room, and what we find there is what was represented in the temple and in all the external sacred signs and forms of our external world. So um, the other word that perhaps, uh, 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 sorry, this word "temeon," which is translated here usually as the inner room, is the same word that we'll look at tomorrow, uh, later, in in, uh, the Gospel of Luke it's translated as storeroom. It's the same word, but translated differently. So the inner room could also be seen as a storeroom. And it's a storeroom that can also be described as a treasure. A place full of rich and tasty things. Like a a larder, I suppose we'd say, where you, you keep lots of nice things. As a child, you go into the larder of, of the kitchen or the house, and, you know, that's where the cakes would be, or that's where the sweets would be. So it's this, I think, is the image of a storeroom where the enjoyable and delightful things are, are held. So just reflect upon that a little bit, uh, this, the meaning of this inner room, this temeon. So how do we enter into this inner room? We enter into it in a way that is, as Jesus describes it, secret. You go into this secret, this inner room, and you pray there in secret. In crypto, gives us the word cryptic, something hidden, uh, a meaning, a cryptic meaning as a like a cryptic crossword. You have to you have to think about it to get to get the clue. But it means there's a meaning hidden in this expression or in these words, a hidden meaning. But it's not hidden in the sense that You're not meant to find it. It's more like a a game. You hide it, and then you go searching for it. And when you find it, like a child, you are delighted that you found it. It's meant to be found. But there has to be the work of finding it. It's not a passive work. And it's a work that will give you the joy of discovery. (coughs) And what is it you discover when you find this hidden, this secret reality, the secret meaning? It's a secret that is hidden only because it is so obvious and so accessible. If you want to hide something, you put it in the most open space, where nobody would think think you'd hide it. You know, if you have a secret document and you put it in your safe and and hide your safe behind a a painting, you know, the, the robber will naturally go there. You leave it on your desk, nobody will think of looking for it there. Well, don't try that, but anyway, it might work. But the idea is, the idea is, is that the, it's secret, but not in the sense that God is, is uh, making it deliberately difficult for us. It's more of a playful kind of secrecy. When children learn to meditate, they take to it very naturally and very simply and happily. They're really pleased to learn about meditation and they really like to meditate. And it really amazes the parents and the teachers that the children are able to sit still, be silent, enter the inner room, close the door, and sit there for a surprising length of time. We say one minute per year of their age, but they can usually, after a while, when they have got used to it, they like to meditate for longer. And this is really surprising to adults, because we don't think of meditation as being as easy as that. I'm not sure that children think of it as either easy or difficult. Sometimes I think they have easier meditations and sometimes they have more difficult meditation times like all of us depending on what's going on in your life at that time But I don't think children think of it like that at all. I think children think of it as something playful There's a very simple rule or few rules about how you play this game of meditation You sit still, you close your eyes, you put your hands on your lap or on your knees, you sit with your back straight, and you are quiet, and you then begin to repeat your word. And you give all your attention, you just say the word. And if other thoughts or plans or things come into your mind, you just push them away or let them go and return to your word. It's a very simple game. We think of it as a really difficult work, and we don't have time for it, and we're not good at it. And, uh, you know, we'll do it next year. But a child approaches it not as something that they have to succeed in, or achieve anything in, but as something that they intuitively, spontaneously discover as a playful game. And when they speak about God, and I don't think they're all theological, but when they speak about God, or when they use the word God in relation to meditation, because they've probably heard their teachers do it, which is a good thing, uh, the way they speak about God is surprisingly intimate and natural. It's nice to be with God, they'll say. Your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So the child's way of, of, of meditating and expressing what meditation means to them, for me, is a most beautiful commentary on these teachings of Jesus. And so it would be much easier for us to get into meditation. Of course, we have more baggage. We have, we have noisier minds we have more problems than they do. It's more difficult for us to be in the present moment because we've got so many memories and so many fears about the future. Nevertheless, it would be much easier for us if we could approach it in that childlike way. In other words, not thinking we have to achieve something, master a technique, or be a good meditator, or feel guilty if we don't meditate, or think of meditation as either being good or bad at all, but just coming to it with this playful sense of finding something that is hidden, but something we are meant to find, and something that is, in fact, easy to find if we do it. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. It's difficult for us to believe that it could be so simple and that the invitation given to us and written in us is so genuine and so sincere. We think there must be a catch. We think we're not worthy of it. We think that maybe it was delivered to the wrong person. Uh, For all sorts of reasons, we find it difficult to simply say, thank you. So the child's experience of meditation, as we see it and feel it when we meditate with them, is a wonderful commentary on these teachings of Jesus. And if we could listen, if we could learn from them, and this is the gift of teaching children to meditate—is that they teach us, uh, you know, we will then also see the meaning of the saying of Jesus that we have to become like little children if we are to enter this inner room of the kingdom. So, the primary way we have to enter this inner room is silence. And we will look a little bit more closely tomorrow at what silence is and what it means, and also how we do the work of silence. But let's conclude the, the day with a time of this work, a time of meditation. And uh, let me remind you again of this very simple way of meditation, which is a very simple way of putting the teaching of <coughs> Jesus on prayer into practice. And as we uh, meditate now, this will be our beginning of the retreat. And so I urge you, I I think we're not in a perfectly soundproof uh, environment here in the university, Um, but what I hope we will uh, be able to understand through uh, the short time of retreat is that we can be silent even if there's noise around us. So I urge you to to think about the opportunity that these days give you. It's a rare opportunity for most people in modern life to really uh, immerse yourself in an environment of silence, especially in a, uh, a community with a group of friends. Meditation reveals us to each other in friendship. Uh, So I urge you to reflect on that opportunity and to take full advantage of it by practicing an external silence as well as an interior silence. In other words, to... uh, To refrain from unnecessary speech, I mean if somebody asks you directions or you know you don't have to <coughs> be fanatical about it, but I think be uh, serious about it, and you know with your friends, if you're here with friends. Uh, It's not necessary. It will be a deepening of the friendship if you agree to be in silence together and that you won't just chat unnecessarily. So it's a question of discretion, of course, and judgment and also of doing what you can do. And some people find silence a little threatening. Uh, It's certainly different and difficult, perhaps, to to make this transition from a noisy world, and a world in which we're constantly communicating, constantly texting, constantly checking emails, constantly phoning, uh, to a a time in which we are physically, and therefore mentally, silent. So I urge you, if you can, uh, to turn off your mobile phones, and keep them off. And certainly make sure that they're off when we're in this space together, because it is disturbing if they go off, which just reminds me. <laughs> there you are. So um, Again, that uh, sets up for, for many, uh, many of us uh, some withdrawal symptoms. As we get addicted uh, to these uh, ways of constant uh, chatter, constant stimulation, constant curiosity, and uh, but you will only benefit from taking a break from it. So <laughs> again, it's up to you, but I would urge you to do that. This is a very a kind of short uh, time of retreat in silence, but you can make it a deep time if you decide to do so. And in any case, whatever you decide to do, at least uh, try to be friendly to others who may want to be in the silence and respect the silence around them. And uh, if you do, if you, if you approach it From that perspective, you you will probably understand what silence is better. In other words, if you think that everyone else here in this room is also going to benefit from silence, it will be easier for you to be silent. In other words, this this is why silence creates a sense of relationship, why meditation creates community. This is something we have to discover uh, and time of retreat is a very good and quick way, actually, of discovering something that our world needs urgently to remember. So, just before we uh, move into meditation, would anybody have any, any, any questions or comments they'd like to, to raise before we move on? OK, well, thank you. And that's, well, I uh, think you mean about, uh, before and after the meditation, we, I ring the bell. This is Bill, Bill, Bill Harrison's, Bill was a very much loved uh, member of the uh, Houston community. So we're using his, his bowl here for the retreat. Um, So before and after the meditation, we'll ring it three times, and I'll ring it fairly slowly, so it gives us time to to get into it. Children love the bell. In fact, the only question they normally have is, "Can I ring it next time?" (laughs) But as I'm leading the retreat, I ring the bell, so you can't. (laughs) But uh, what I uh, what we ask the children to do is, as you as you lead into uh, the meditation. Listen to the sound of the gong. Put up your hand when you can't hear it anymore. Oh, you've got ears. Okay. So there'll be three of those. Now. Catch yourself if, after the first one, you say, when is he going to ring the second one? (laughs) Notice that. (laughs) So, the bell is a very... Father John wrote a book called Word Into Silence. This is sound into silence. So by listening to the sound of the the bell, of of the gong, Uh, We are preparing the mind for entering into this inner room through this work of attention, just by listening, that's all. Just listen to the It's a pleasant sound, isn't it? Anybody find it aggravating, irritating? Now, you could do it another way. I have to warn you, this may be offensive to some people. So we don't do it that way. I think uh, somebody told me the Chinese, or maybe the, I think it was a Vietnamese word for what we call ringing the bell is inviting the bell to sound. So we'll invite the bell, the gong to sound. We're already moving into another space, aren't we? And what's the space we're moving into? in a room so, so we will do that uh, three times and uh, then we're into the meditation we'll meditate this evening for about 20 25 minutes and then uh, at the end of the meditation it, the the bell the gong will sound again and then this is what Rob was referring to. We have a, a, uh, we have a, a, a convention, if we remember, to remind people to, uh, to, to stay still, physically still, until the end of the third bell after the meditation. So when you hear the bell the third, uh, after the meditation, you'll know the time is up. Now, you might say, thank God, it's over. Or you might say, well, that was a beautiful meditation. I wish I had another five minutes. doesn't matter. You are detached from whether it's a good or a bad meditation. And that is the meditation, being detached from whether it's good or bad. And you kind of express that and actually reinforce that even at the last minute. In other words, after the bell has sounded at the end, by remaining still and not moving or opening your eyes until the third bell. Just a little discipline. You nobody's going to take points off your license for, for if you don't. But I think you'll find that helpful. Just try it anyway. And I think you'll find that it uh, It brings another little quality and depth to the discipline of the meditation itself. And then, if you like, you can just bow gently like that to indicate. And that's the end of the meditation. Okay? So, Rob, thank you. Thank you. Any other... OK, let me, let me just remind you again of this very simple way of the prayer of the heart. First thing is to sit with your back straight. As we're all sitting uh, in chairs, keep your feet on the ground. Sit with your back straight, but not rigid, and just take a moment to find your sit, your sit bones. If you move a little bit from left to right, you'll feel those bones there. And uh, align yourself on those, and that will help you sit more upright. Don't lean back into the chair any more than you need to. Relax your shoulders. Take a few moments to be aware of your breath. This is also a good moment to clear your throat, blow your nose, sneeze, or in any other way, make noise. Hmm? People often ask, what's the difference between Buddhist and Christian meditation? And the main difference is, well, I say the main difference, but one of the obvious differences is that in Buddhist meditation, people don't cough as much. And most people start coughing after the meditation starts. It's like at a, at a, at a concert. Most people start making noises as soon as the, mu- as soon as the music starts. <coughs> so just prepare yourself a little bit, clear your throat, And the key to this is just to relax, actually. And just then be aware of your breath. Just turn your attention to the, uh, that gentle rhythm of respiration, breathing in, accepting the gift of life, and breathing out, letting go of that gift. Every breath we take is really a, a little teaching on what meditation means. And by paying attention to your breath, you are beginning to take the attention off your thoughts, off yourself. That's the art of prayer the laying aside of thoughts, all thoughts, including good thoughts, clever thoughts, insights, all thoughts. Letting them all go into the cloud of forgetting, so that we can move into the cloud of unknowing. And to help us to do that, we now take our word, our mantra. And we begin to say it, to sound it, silently in our mind and heart. And the word I recommend is Maranatha. Four syllables, Ma-Ra-Na-tha. So we simply repeat this word continuously, faithfully, during the time of the meditation. And when we find our mind wandering along different highways and byways of thought, past or future, we drop the thought unfinished, we leave the problem unsolved, and we come back immediately, simply, to the mantra. So, the mantra is your your guide, your central point of reference, your path. It's the way you're following. So, give your full attention to the word. Say it clearly in your mind and heart. Listen to it as you say it, and keep returning to it. The word again, I suggest, maranatha, maranatha, maranatha. Say the word gently, without force, but say it continuously and faithfully. If you know this prayer of Father John, you can join. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to the silent presence of the Spirit of your Son. Lead us into that mysterious silence where your love is revealed to all who call. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.